This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. To get transcriptomics, uh, so they looked at the cells and then looked at the expression. Um, interestingly, they found a unique population of cells. There was a CD8 subset, uh, which represented 80% of the T cells. It was CD38 high, CD127 negative, uh, and PD1 positive. They did have an increased expression of cytotoxic genes, and they did have a interferon signature. They did, uh, uh, which, which you wouldn't think of as being I mean, happens in RA, happens in PSA. You think of it being associated with lupus, but they found that in uh, uh, the, in the tr over transcription of genes downstream from the type one interferon. So uh, I think this was uh, fascinating. The, the first of all, the ability to do the work where they can look at individual cell types, which are even if they're the same type of cell, they might have differences uh, at the expression level. Uh, they found the population. Maybe this will translate into something we can use therapeutically. We have guidelines on immune checkpoint inhibitor arthritis, but not a lot of data. So maybe this is uh, promising. Yeah, there's a, certainly a lot at this meeting about checkpoint inhibitors and uh, stuff that affects us. And uh, it's, a, it's a growing concern for rheumatologists because most of us are seeing this. And you know, short of using steroids, the next step is really concerning. And then other steps about like how long we're gonna, gonna have to treat them for and when do we, you know, how are we going to communicate with the oncologists about when they can resume their, their, uh, you know, their, their checkpoint uh, therapies and whatnot. It's, it's it still seems to be a fair amount of push pull, but uh, thank God we have research like this. Again, the, the, the authors didn't take this to the next step and postulate on how this could be used therapeutically, did they? No, and it was a you know, small number of people, but I think it, the, this finding really did surprise them. And maybe we should be thinking more of uh, alternative therapies. As you say, one of the problems is anything we're going to use for inflammatory arthritis, you, you sure don't want to interfere with the ability to kill the tumor. That's why they're on the checkpoint inhibitor in the first place. Um, in the clinic, it's, hey, boy, it's tough, isn't it? Because they're on these for the long haul, the checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah. Um, there's no, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you'll see, well, maybe if you're still doing well next year, we'll think about stopping it. But they're on them for the long haul. So this is something we, we certainly need more information. So I, I wanna talk about vaccination um, and specifically vaccination in patients who are receiving tofacitinib. So there were two abstracts that were presented, uh, late breaking four LO4 presented by Kevin Winthrop and then uh, a Shingrix vaccination in tofa um, that was uh, 1997. Um, Kevin presented this data on the drug development program with tofacitinib and 21 trials and had a low number of patients who received the influenza vaccine. And then the point of this was, could they get the influenza vaccine? Was there any real issue in there? And the bottom line was there was not. There, there was no greater, um, and of course they had patients who were on placebo in their trials and on methotrexate and on adalimumab and also on tofacitinib. And the numbers of you know, uh, actual influenza events or even worse, hospitalizations um, or serious events, those were like less than one or one and a half percent across the board. Um, the bottom line was it looked pretty good. So that's good news for you 
especially now as we're getting into the flu season uh, and worrying about when we're gonna get the COVID vaccine, can you do this in your, um, in your patients on tofacitinib? The answer is yes, but wait, there's this other abstract that was presented by Kalmark from Sweden. And it was a study to look at the um, sort of the immunogenic potential of the, the new uh, shingles subunit vaccine, the one that's on the market now, the Shingrix. Uh, and in that study, they studied 40 patients and they basically they had a, a bunch of controls and they showed that the controls had a good antibody response and the tofacitinib patients also had a good antibody response and they had um, you know, mild to moderate symptoms, no big deal. But the caveat worth mentioning here is that 25% of patients on tofacitinib did not have an antibody response, which, you know, I'm sending all my patients that are going on on the, um, a JAK inhibitor to receive the, the, the Shingrix vaccine. And even ones who are not old enough to get it, I'm trying to implore them to get it because uh, these drugs, this class of drugs does impart a three to four to five fold higher risk of, sh of shingles. And if you can avoid it with a 95% effective drug, why not? Um, but this says that maybe like methotrexate for people who uh, are on, and it's maybe because this is not really what the intention of the study was, but maybe like methotrexate for people who you're going to give shingrix to, maybe they should suspend the use of tofacitinib for, I don't know, a week or two. What would you do with this data? Well, they, it, the problem is we don't know what they mean. Um, so presumably your cell-mediated immunity is more important for the control of the viral infection, such as uh, zoster. This is a nice surrogate looking at the antibody production, but we, we don't know as much about what that means. They may, it may be possible that they, they have perfectly good ability to control it, uh, control the, the zoster, or it could be that they need a booster. Um, you know, the zero and then two to six months later, very reasonable. And certainly that was, uh, seemed to be quite efficient in the general population, but maybe it's not in, in these people. We, do, we just, we don't have, a, um, we don't have a, a great readout because what, we don't care about antibodies. We care about cases of zoster. So, um, oh, there's Jeff Curtis who writes in and says, uh, Kevin and Winthrop and I are starting a larger Shingrix trial in RA next year. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. And yeah, I mean, uh, we want to see events. That's what we really want to know. That's, that's one of the difficulties, even I think in infections where it's the antibodies are more reliable in terms of to predict, um, you still want events. You want to, you're preventing the disease. That's what you want to see. Yeah. So I, I also want to give, I saw Jeff's tweet about this and I said, Oh, I got to go look at that abstract. So <laughs> thank you, Dr. Curtis for steering me towards something kind of important. Artie, what's your next one? Well, before I go to the next one, let me, uh, hey, there was a, a comment on the checkpoint inhibitor commenting. Uh, could you comment on the TNF and IL-6 inhibition? Um, I've had more, more experience with the, the TNF inhibition. And I think that, uh, I think it's my level of comfort and the oncologist's level of comfort with uh, what they're okay with me doing. I haven't really used uh, IL-6 inhibition much, but it makes perfect sense. The trouble is we're just all dealing with anecdotes. And um, I don't, you know, I just, uh, I go with what I had more experience with. And, um, you know, I can't say that that's the right way to go. Jack, do you have a preference or? Uh, steroids, TNF inhibitors, IL-6 is certainly possible. Um, I think you'd stay clear of abatacept because of CTLA-4, um, but 
other than that, um, that's just been my general rule. My, I've only had one patient who clearly had this and one who maybe had this. So I haven't not seen that, not as many as like Lenny or David Liu or some of the other people I know have seen a lot of this. Yeah, I think we're all going to see many more of them though. Right. So my next is 1484, which isn't very sexy. I mean, not the number, but the, the study. So time to go to the refrigerator, folks. <laughs> Um, because it's a negative study, but uh, I think sometimes negative studies give us good information, just like positive studies could. This is efficacy of tocilizumab in patients with hand osteoarthritis. So, um, boy, there's been, uh, you know, every year it seems like there's a, a study or every other year there's a study on pretty much uh, all the drugs that we have um, and pretty equivocal data. Uh, and then differences in the study design. Mostly they're negative though. There was a review in the uh, rheumatology Oxford uh, two years ago and looked at this and maybe there was a hint of a positive signal for hydroxychloroquine. Um, but I think this is, this is an important issue. I think when we see osteoarthritis patients, boy, it gets harder and harder to say we got nothing but if you come back, if you get RA, because I got 20 therapies. And if you have PSA, I got 15. And if you have lupus, I have six. Um, so this was, you know, I think a nicely designed study. Not so big, 104 patients. Um, and 80, 80 of the patients um, completed the study. They didn't find a difference. So the primary outcome was the visual analog scale for pain, which had to be above 40 at the start. Uh, the ch delta was um, minus 7.9 in the tocilizumab group and minus 9.9 in the placebo. So the p-value, as you can imagine, is, is 0.7. So absolutely no difference about that. Also no difference in the, the secondary outcomes. And as you would expect, uh, a little bit more of a signal with adverse events in the uh, treatment group. So um, a, still a big unmet need uh, in uh, osteoarthritis, particularly the inflammatory kind. I think, what do we do? We, we sort of treat them with the agents that we have for rheumatoid arthritis. We treat them methotrexate. We give them hydroxychloroquine, at least until this year when I had to, I like to use hydroxychloroquine for inflammatory hand OA, but all of them had to develop rheumatoid arthritis in the chart so that I could get the drug for them because they weren't getting it this summer. Um, or COVID. COVID. It was COVID, COVID related, <laughs> related arthritis, CRA. Um, but it was a, a negative study, nicely done study, negative study. And uh, especially when you think about the tolerability issues, that of course weighs in our decision to use any treatment. So the, 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 the therapeutic pessimist likes to talk about all the drugs that have failed in scleroderma. They should change that to all the drugs that have failed in osteoarthritis, especially of the hand and doesn't even have to be inflammatory OA. All of our DMARDs have failed multiple times. All of our biologics have failed. But you know, the, I, the rationale behind this is not unreasonable, um, meaning that there is a component of inflammation that drives you know, uh, early events in, um, in cartilage degeneration that is one of the earliest steps in, um, in development of OA. Um, these cytokines are often mediators of pain, you know, uh, involved in, in pain signaling. So why not, you know? Uh, but again, this didn't work and it, it was again disappointing. Uh, I'm not surprised. I, I would say still my, my go-to drug for osteoarthritis of the hand is acetaminophen and uh, uh, cohesive tape 
for problematic joints. I wrap up fingers and immobilize them. And then I give them maybe, a, you know, two milligrams of prednisone for as short a period as I could possibly get away with. Other than that, I don't have a lot. It's really disappointing. My, so my next one is um, IL-16 and lupus nephritis. This was actually a presentation, uh, a plenary session presentation uh, done on the second day uh, presented by uh, Andrea Fava from Boston. Um, this is abstract 0936. Uh, this is a, a proteomic study where they looked at urinary proteomics as a, as a way of looking at lupus activity or lupus disease correlates, um, making the point that, you know, what do we do to uh, best assess lupus nephritis patients? We have biopsy, we have sampling issues with that. It's not always available. We have proteinuria, which actually can be um, somewhat helpful or can be misleading. Uh, and the idea here is that in, in multiple studies that they did looking at um, cytokines in the kidney, they, they, they actually showed that IL-16 is like the second most common cytokine found in the kidney. So they actually took 30 lupus patients over 110 um, urine samples and did proteomic sampling on that um, to see what they could come up with. And they basically showed that lupus patients who have class three and class four proliferative glomerulonephritis have a strong correlation with high urinary IL-16 levels, that those levels do correlate with histologic activity scores, but not chronicity scores, um, and that those levels will go down as the patient clinically improves on therapy. Um, that IL-16 level was independent of urinary proteinuria, um, and that was sort of another uh, key feature. And then other studies that were um, sort of uh, adjunctive to this looked at IL-16 staining in the kidney in, in renal biopsies and showed there's a lot of IL-16, especially around the glomerulus, but even within the glomerulus. Um, IL-16 is a CD4 ligand, but actually has a lot of downstream effects that um, are, you know, clearly would make it a, a, a good immunologic target or, or an immunologic activator, I guess, in this situation. Uh, so they showed that this was very predictive. Um, it was easily obtained. At some point, I guess it could be easily obtained. Uh, again, to me, it's, I found it novel, and I thought it was a really well done study that covered all its bases, um, looking at um, many different markers. Uh, but they, again, what, what sort of stood out amongst all the others was the IL-16. Yeah, that was, that was, it was definitely well done. And there's been a kind of a, a, a hint at looking at urinary uh, biomarkers in lupus nephritis, which in some ways, it makes sense, of course, because you're you're downstream from the target organ, literally downstream from the target organ, um, and uh, but you you also wondered because the obviously proteinuria is part and parcel of the disease, so you have kind of a gamish of proteins. You have the tubular, the TAM horsebrel proteins. You have proteins that are leaked out from uh, patients who have any sort of membranous involvement with their lupus. But you also have uh, potential biomarkers of disease activity. Um, that would just be that would just be absolutely outstanding to have something like that. I, I, I think in the clinic, um, you go, you know what the biopsy is, and of course we we teach the fellows to to not just take the number like three um, because three could be uh, one proliferative glomerulus among fifty with a little bit or it could be just barely a four with a bunch of crescents and a lot of chronicity. So we, we desperately, need, uh, desperately need something as a biomarker. I think, you know, they, the, um, especially the more therapies that we have available to us, the, the 
uh, you know, now with the positive data looking for belimumab with the other CD20 targeted therapy, uh, well, CD20 targeted therapies, not just rituximab, which didn't work, but uh, albinutuzumab, which is much more efficient at depleting. So um, yeah, biomarker lupus nephritis would be just outstanding. Plus you could collect it remotely. You can literally mail it in uh, and you can have many, many sampling points and you can't do a biopsy that often. Um, and it's, I think sometimes it's hard to get them done. They're expensive to get done. So this could be a, a really a, a tremendous advance to not only the clinical care, but also uh, of the uh, research studies into lupus nephritis. Absolutely. So I'm going to um, go into psoriatic arthritis, or should we take the uh, chats, Jack? Or yeah, if we have, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um... Well, Nancy Lane gives us a shout out. Keep the faith for OA treatments. Uh, hopefully, we certainly need them for so many patients. My gosh. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, Gary Botstein, um, anecdotal abatacept treating CPI induced myocarditis, New England Journal. Thank you, Gary from Atlanta. <coughs> what else we got? Um, Is um, it now standard to add bilimumab? I don't. I don't know that it's standard. I think some people still come into terms with uh, with that data. That data. Uh, it was presented by Rich, uh, did a great job presenting it, presented it earlier at ULAR, um, looked at some subset analyses here, which was the new part of the study, the Belimab study. Um, I have to look to catch the, the number of that presentation, um, but it showed that it worked actually, uh, if, it, if it had lesser effect, it seemed like it was in membranous, uh, whereas in uh, uh, three and four, it, uh, it actually, it looked very solid. Um, and uh, he promised in the presentation today that he would get back to us about the, some of the other analyses that they're doing on that data to, to really help refine. So I don't know that I would say it's a standard of care because the effect size was pretty, it was small um, for sure, but it was absolutely clear. So to me, what I wanna say is, well, within that, you know, if you, if you have an improvement uh, with one therapy over another of 15, 20%, that's small, but who are the people for whom it really makes a difference? I think that's what we need to see. They also looked at race in that one and it looked, um, there were smaller numbers, but it didn't look like there was a lack of effect among African-American patients. Right. So um, not, not a standard of care, but I tell you, that's, that data still surprised people. It's encouraging data, but it's certainly far from Dr. Bazara, uh, uh, Dr. Baza Varaju, who's here in Texas um, and has taken care of one of my lupus nephritis patients and does done a great job. Um, uh, she points out this, you know, what's the standard? I think this encouraging data can't be misconstrued as a standard right now. I think we still have to rely on the drugs that have, have been good for us so far, mycophenolate uh, when necessary, the Euro um, uh, cytoxin pro protocol uh, um, that seems to work really well for a lot of patients. So. Um, but it's very encouraging. I think they just have to follow up on it. And it was also very encouraging are all the trials being done right now where lupus nephritis is the primary endpoint as opposed to trying to get a global lupus uh, indication. So, Yeah, that abstract number, by the way, Richie Furies was 1441. Um, it was kind of an update that's been published uh, in the New England Journal just earlier this year. But the new parts are the sub-analyses according to the histopathology of the kidney 
and also the the uh, analysis by the race. Um, and it was interesting when he gave his presentation. Someone asked about the cost benefit um, because uh, you know the when you say when do you use the different therapies? Well, it's the tolerability, it's the clinical effect, it's the cost. So all those things go into the equation. So I'm going to go into psoriatic arthritis, and there was a, a late breaker, LO3. Uh, Phil Meese was the first author in this one. This was Ducravacitinib, which uh, is a molecule that we've seen studied in skin psoriasis. And it's a, a one of the JAK inhibs, but it's really much more of a TIC2 inhibitor. And if the immunology makes sense, which it doesn't always make sense, uh, it's, it's really easy to predict the past. And I think that's what we do with the immunology. That's why we know IL-1 isn't really important in RA because blocking it doesn't work. But um, if you drew out psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, you might say that those cytokines that use the JAK signaling molecules uh, that TIC2 might be an, a very useful target. And this is a, a relatively selective TIC2 inhibitor. And of course, the, the, the flip side of that is, are there going to be differences in safety? Is it going to be uh, any different compared to the other jackets? But of course, first they have to prove efficacy. So this is a study in PSA, um, typical criteria. They looked at two different doses, six and 12, uh, and they met their, the primary endpoint was the ACR20. Um, at week 16. And then they got that in 53% of the lower dose, 63% of the higher dose, compared to 31, 32% uh, of the placebo. They also saw uh, uh, impact in functional status and in quality of life. Um, actually, nice distinction in uh, anthocytosis as well. They didn't see a bunch in uh, side effects. Now, of course, it's psoriatic arthritis where the um, generally things, the patients are younger and generally fewer comorbid conditions. So they tend to do well with a lot of therapies. And um, we need to see more. We want to see what the skin effect is because that's one of the things that people had hoped was maybe this would have a better skin effect than the other jackanibs. But it was a positive study. And I think that's, uh, that's you know, they, that's, uh, intriguing, and we certainly look forward to, to more data on that. So, or do you do follow the psoriasis literature and you run the same circles as those, those skin dermatologists? Um, what's the take on, on tick 2 inhibition in skin disease? You know, they did, I think they had like a, a, a big paper um, about this last two years ago, and, uh, and I know it's out there as far as the research is being further studied, but does this, is this going to stack up against IL-17 and IL-23 and those other new that's, modalities? That's an uh, interesting question. And the, uh, uh, you know, the dermatologists are, they're giddy with success with the 17s and the 23 inhibitors. So uh, as I like to say, they, you know, they talk about the PASI 75, the PASI 90, the PASI 100, the PASI 120, where you get completely clear and your sister gets 20% clear. Um, you know, this is that's not that... Drug. <laughs> this is not that level of response, but it's much higher than what has been seen previously with the jacketins. Remember, a couple of years back, tofacitinib went to the agency, um, and I think part of why they didn't get approved at that time was that the higher dose was definitely much better than the lower dose, and it's and it wasn't in league with what the dermatologists were seeing. So I think the attitude was, well, why do we need this? Now they are super hot on jacketins not only in psoriasis, but um, boy, you, you almost, you, you name it. And they're looking at jackanibs 
for the therapy for a whole manner of, of immunologic skin diseases. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, orphan diseases in dermatology that don't get a lot of study. Uh, hydradenitis, uh, the bullous diseases, and there's a bunch of interest in jackanib. So I think they are pretty high on these. Um, and, you know, I get the, the, we seem to be worrying more, at least as of now, about the, the tolerability issues and the VTE issues with jackanibs. Dermatology is very high on them. Yeah, and, and uh, I think it's <laughs> I think it's great that the ticks are being developed, uh, and we'll see what their range of efficacy is going to be. But it's you know it's going to get a really crowded in that on that jack uh, inhibitor floor uh, now that the ticks are going to be in there, and fogotinib uh, after it sorts out its, its problems with the regulatory agencies might be on the market as well. I want to move on to um, another difficult disease to treat, and that is uh, systemic sclerosis. Um, Dinesh Khanna had a uh, podium presentation today about a novel compound called Zirataxistat. Zirataxistat. Um, the name of the study is the Novessa study. I have to get you the numbers on that. I don't have it right here, but it's the Novessa study. Uh, and this is a, a study using this new drug, which is an autotaxin inhibitor. The idea being that there are two, there are a few main pathways that can lead to skin fibrosis, but um, uh, autotaxin is one of them, and uh, as is IL-6, IL uh, and those two are somewhat interrelated. So this makes for an, a fairly attractive target, um, and that's what Zerotaxistat is supposed to do. They studied it in, um, in patients with early diffuse systemic sclerosis. Uh, I believe it was, this is like an early phase two study. They enrolled uh, 21 patients on Zerotaxistat and uh, um, uh, 12 on the placebo, uh, and they, they, the primary endpoint here was going to be the modified Rodman skin score. Uh, and they, patients, the groups matched up really well. There was slightly higher um, skin thickening with um, um, modified Rodman or 27 in the Zerotaxistat group, 22 in the placebo group. But after, I guess, 24 weeks, which is the primary endpoint, um, the, um, the, the study drug did much better than, than placebo minus eight uh, versus minus five. Um, and that was significant at both week 16 and week 24. Um, they have a biomarker that showed significance. So again, this is, this is great in that it's phase two, but phase two, a lot of things look great in phase two. Will it pan out in phase three is what we need, but they are going further um, with uh, this investigation. So I think that's encouraging. Yeah. Um, but they're, they, uh... You know, they uh, used to say like the Cubs, but I guess you could say like the Mets now. Uh, you know, every, the start of every season, it looks promising. You know, in spring training, they, they are going to win the World Series this year. And I think, unfortunately, scleroderma is, is sort of like that. There's, I think back over the years, um, so many therapies that not only made sense, if you look at the mechanism, you say, well, that's an interesting mechanism. Um, you know, that, that's, that's something all that uh, could work. Think back to relaxin from decades ago, uh, where it worked in phase two and actually had a biomarker. It had increased bleeding because it, uh, you know, it increased menstrual bleeding because that was part of the, the mechanism of it. Failed dismally in phase three. How many of the therapies are there? I, I hate to be negative uh, about scleroderma, but um, you know, you have your, your hopes up so many times by so many so many therapies that should have worked. So. 
is it the outcomes? Um, you know, we looked at, at ULAR, there was a nice, uh, there was a study uh, looking at skin ultrasound as a, perhaps a more uh, objective way of looking at skin. Um, we desperately need some therapies. There's some, there's some hints of positive. So, uh, and of course, the, Dinesh, you know, he, 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 he spins a great tale and you, you, get, you gotta be a believer and it makes sense, but I think we really do need to see the, the longer term data. So my next one, um, I think, speaking of uh, of an unmet need, and and I I, I really liked seeing this because I think um, just over the past couple of weeks, I interestingly have had uh, a few people with giant cell arteritis. Um, one of whom just refused to take steroids, which is an interesting patient wow. discussion. And and another one who took the steroids, but is just uh, you know he said. His wife wanted him on the steroids because he cleaned the whole house by 5 a.m. because um, he was so manic. Uh, but what do we have? Well, we, we, we have the IL-6 inhibitor, we have tocilizumab and presumably cerilumab, but this is a late breaker abstract LO6 for mavrilumab, um, mavrilimumab, um, which is a GMCSF uh, directed monoclonal antibody that have been studied and had some positive results in rheumatoid arthritis this is in giant cell arteritis. And um, I think, you know, as we were just talking about for scleroderma, there is a, there is a scientific rationale looking at uh, histopathologic uh, expression within the inflamed vessel wall in patients with giant cell arteritis that you could make a case that it could be effective. So this is a study, um, a 70 patient study with either new or recurrent giant cell arteritis. They had a, a fixed tapering plan of, for the corticosteroids. And of course, corticosteroids are the mainstay of therapy, but then it was mavrilimumab or placebo um, randomized and flare was the primary outcome. And what they found out that uh, disease flare by week 26, which is the time period over which they were also uh, doing the steroid taper, uh, had 46.4% uh, of placebo and 19% of mavrilimumab. Um, overall, the tolerability seemed to be pretty good. Sustained remission, this is 83.2% of mavrilimumab versus 50% of those on placebo. It was both new and recurrent patients. Um, tolerability seemed to be relatively good. Not a lot of, of AEs, not a lot of uh, SAEs. Of course, these are people, by definition, they're older and they have a lot of stuff going on. So they're going to have some AEs no matter what you treat them with. Um, but there, I think this, this was interesting and promising. And I just, I said, I literally just thought of it because the, um, you know, the, in the clinic, yeah, we get steroids. Um, we have IL-6 inhibitor. I'm not, a, I don't know about you, Jack. I'm not a methotrexate believer. I don't think uh, methotrexate is, is a really viable option in giant cell arteritis. I don't think it works. I think we use it because we're rheumatologists and we use methotrexate for everything. So I was, I was excited to see the, the possibility of, of these data. Yeah, it's in. It's certainly in the holster and ready to use at all at all times. And I I have used it, but not with a lot of great hope. Um, and uh, and you know uh, the IL six inhibitors seem to work really well in GCA problematic GCA in the uncontrolled clinical trials that are out there. So um, that's certainly an option. But getting it approved, getting it paid for is going to be another issue. 
I do want to see more development. I mean, there's a lot of patients in this country and all around the world with uh, GCA. So, um, you know, um, and even more with PMR. But um, interestingly, you know, uh, you know, as much as there's a great need here, there isn't a lot of people using the approved IL-6 inhibitor here. So I'm not sure what the reluctance is. Um, maybe like we're too uh, married to methotrexate. We're also too married to continuing that, that steroid at 10 milligrams, 12 milligrams, 15 milligrams, as opposed to using a biologic. Um, but I, I think this is a great study. And I mean, so good that, you know, one of the faults of the study was uh, one of the secondary endpoints was time to flare. And they really couldn't calculate it for the mavrolimumab group because they didn't really have any flares, yeah. which is like a great thing. Yeah, it's it's a you know it's a funny population because they're older people with by de by definition they're sick people like you're talking about the gout population before, and I I think there's a reluctance you know I think if you look hard enough you could talk yourself out of a biologic that um, you know the in in somebody who's over sixty and you know has some other comorbid conditions. But in those populations, you know, is methotrexate, is that going to be a go-to? And to me, I think if you use methotrexate, you want to use it, you're going to use it 25 milligrams a week or more even um, if you're going to do steroid sparing with it. So um, yeah, I was excited, excited to see the data. The, the anecdotal data, uh, as I know it for the TNF inhibitors, has not been as great, even though I think the anecdotal data are very good in Takayasu's, uh, I don't think the anecdotal data in Giant Cell um, are that good. Yeah. So uh, a few comments, but not much um, jack inhibitors in GCA given IL-6 effects, you know, theoretical, but not studied well enough to even talk about it here. Um, and, and, you know, there's a concern about GI preparations, a very low risk event with both tofacitinib and even IL-6 uh, agents, uh, uh, jack inhibitors and IL-6 inhibitors as well. So, yeah, um, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the GI issue, I think is... It, you know, it, it, everybody who's going to qualify for this study has degenerative disc disease. Everybody has a diverticular disease because all humans do by the time they get old enough to get giant cell arthritis. Right, right. All right, so my next one is um, the results of a uh, afternoon session where it was sort of understanding auto-inflammatory diseases and Dan Kastner presented this sort of like, you know, what to do with undifferentiated auto-inflammatory but, you know, you almost really should watch this presentation because um, Dan Kastner gets very demonstrative in this thing. He's like, he's playing super sleuth and he's banging on the table and it's a really, really good scientific story. And it's a story of Vexus. Vexus is a new, not Texas. Vexus is a new syndrome. V for vacuoles, E for uh, E1 ubiquitin activating enzyme, X being X-linked, A auto-inflammatory and S for somatic mutations. The story goes, he had a patient, patient was with an auto-inflammatory-like presentation uh, and, um, and they did a bone marrow and the pathologist at the NIH was going over the bone marrow and said, you know, there's these very strange vacuoles in the cells within the marrow. Uh, and she said, I wanna study this further, come back. And they came back two days later and she said, aha, there's two other patients. So I had to look up, I remember this happening before. You need to look up these people and see if they have the same problem. And sure enough, they did have the same kind of presentation. And sure enough, all three of them were known to have, were found to have this um, uh, UBA1 um, somatic mutation. 
Uh, it's an X-linked somatic mutation. So they did further investigation. It turns out some of those patients had relapsing polychondritis-like symptoms. They did further investigations and they found out that uh, in their center, they had 21 males. Um, they investigated them. They all had this UBA1, uh, all male, middle-aged, high fever, sweets-like rashes, neutrophilic-like lung involvement, chondritis, VTEs, macrocytic anemia. Um, they had a lot of other diagnoses. A lot of, most of them, more than half of them were re relapsing polychondritis. A lot of them were sweets or myelodysplasia. Uh, a few were polyarteritis nodosa. Um, but they were all ultimately unified by, these, um, uh, by the UBA1 mutation and the other clinical features here. So this is a new syndrome. It's going to be a rare syndrome, but it is a nice sort of uh, scientific whodunit that's got a happy ending um, and a new syndrome being described. I think the key to any new anti-autoinflammatory uh, syndrome um, is the acronym. You have to have a cool acronym, you know, DIRA, um, you know. When, when, Deficiency of IL-1 receptor antagonist. Yeah, yeah the, it, or, or, you know, the, the whole, uh, all the autoinflammatory syndromes. Hash, nah, yeah, I, I, there's a whole bunch of them. The other thing I, I, want, I want to really underscore here is that Kastner said, uh, and they have, they're famous for their auto-inflammatory clinic. You know, they got Rafaela Goldback-Mansky and a bunch of other people that are just fabulous there. They have about 3,000 patients they follow in their auto-inflammatory clinic, but only 1,000 of those people have a firm genetic diagnosis. Two-thirds of their audience, they're not so sure, but they're following them. They're treating them symptomatically. A lot of them are on biologics. They're doing a lot of sampling to see if, you know, where they can find like syndromes amongst the 2,000 are unrecognized. So don't be you know, frustrated if you can't quite figure it out. I think genetic testing is a little bit more available. Uh, if you want to do genetic testing in what you think is an auto-inflammatory periodic fever, go to invitae.com, I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. You know, the patient can pay $100, now it's $250 cash, and get like 77 genes tested for. And you don't have to be writing letters to medical directors to try to get you know, the FMF gene tested for. You can get all 77 done. So just think about that. Yeah, and, and you know, it's so, it gets so complicated because you have somatic mutations. These are not inherited diseases as of yet because uh, they just started. And then also some, some of those are lineage dependent. So you have a somatic mutation only in myeloid cells, right. which makes it incredibly hard. I mean, Dan, of course, it can do the deep sequencing that you need to find those mutations in different cell populations. But if you just looked broadly, like with the genetic test, they would, they would show up normal. So um, yeah, maybe we're sending them over to, uh, over to Dan and, and uh, maybe, maybe Dan will name a disease after you. <laughs> no, it was already a Cushing syndrome. All yeah. right, we got, already we got the 10 minutes left. It's a, uh, it's lightning round. Why don't you do a mulligan? Tell us about your research at the meeting. Well, the, the, actually, I'm going to, I have another one teed up, so I'm going to do that one. Okay. Um, that's abstract 40. Um, and this is uh, a whole blood RNA expression in clinically suspected arthralgia. Um, and this is uh, from the Netherlands. And of course, uh, they do fantastic work there with the early arthritis clinics, including people who don't have uh, inflammatory arthritis. Those who have arthralgias, maybe seropositive, of course, they collect these folks and follow them. Um, there's uh, great information, including at this meeting about the, uh, how likely are they to develop inflammatory arthritis and shocking numbers. They're actually pretty low. Like if you're CCP negative, basically by two years, you're only 15% of you who have clinically suspect arthralgia 
are going to have inflammatory arthritis. If you're CC positive, maybe that's 30, 40%. Um, so this was from one of those clinics that contributed to several of the uh, meeting, several of the abstracts of the meeting. This is abstract 40, and, and this looked at whole blood RNA expression. So again, uh, transcriptomics, expressionomics, or proteomics, looking at the RNA level. And what they did is take a couple hundred patients from the Leiden clinically suspect arthralgia cohort, followed the patients up through two years or until they developed uh, inflammatory arthritis, looked at 135 genes in innate and adaptive immune system um, and said, how, how can they detect who is going to develop inflammatory arthritis? So of the cohort of, of 230 or something, 20% developed inflammatory arthritis. Um, and interestingly, of the 100, you, you think one of the problems when you look uh, is multiple, multiple uh, analyses, and you're going to find something what they did find is that there were um, six genes that uh, really stood out after controlling for multiple testing, which is what you have to do. If you're gonna look at a thousand variables, some of them are gonna be significant. So they found six, um, interferon, gamma, uh, uh, PHEX, um, in, in insulin-like growth factor one, IL-17 receptor, CD19, and the chemokine receptor, CCR7. Um, looking at linkage, what they ended up with was that two uh, IGF-1 and IL-17 receptor were most differentially expressed in those people who went on to develop inflammatory arthritis. So uh, the data, um, you know, it doesn't make sense necessarily because it doesn't fit with our little story of how, how people develop uh, inflammatory arthritis, but the data were pretty clear. And of, uh, of course, one of these uh, biomarker studies they always predict the past and um, we, we need to predict the future. So it'd love to see something like this validated, but it was nice crisp data that said that maybe we can find out that we go to clinic next week um, or this week, uh, somebody whose joints ache and they're CCP positive, but they don't have arthritis and maybe you get an ultrasound and they have a little power Doppler signal. What, what's gonna happen to them and how can we know? And if we did know, that gets the whole idea about early arthritis or tr early treatment of arthritis, which could be that much better than waiting longer. The other abstract that sort of ties in with this is the one that you and I looked at, 481, which is about um, patients with suspicious synovitis, um, meaning that they don't have any swollen joints, they have a few tender joints, um, and, uh, and, but they have an ultrasound signal for synovitis. Uh, and that was a fairly large three cohorts, like two or 300 people in each cohort. And they looked at, you know, predictors of developing rheumatoid arthritis. And the bottom line was fairly low level, just like you said. But if, uh, if you were CCP positive, and they didn't tell us about high or low CCP, um, that your, your positive, your chance of developing RA went on, went up from like less than 20% to almost 50% on average. Uh, and that's sort of what I think the practice is. But the question is, if you have an ache and a, and a pain, but no swollen joints, but ultrasound synovitis, and you're CCP positive, should you be on a DMARD? The authors on that study said no. And I think that currently is the standard, but there are a lot of people that are being swayed into treating those people right now. And I think you can treat them symptomatically, but I'm not gonna treat an MRI and I'm not gonna treat a lab and I'm not, certainly not gonna treat uh, a little power Doppler signal. I think you really have to treat swollen joints at this point. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And, and you'd overtreat, you'd overtreat a lot of people, which is, you know, I think that gets to the idea, what are you, what are you going to treat them with? I think everybody thinks Plaquenil is, is pretty safe. 
um, but is that that's not super super effective? So, what do you treat them with? Yeah, I got a, I got a quickie. My uh, sixteen oh seven. This was done by a um, um, a one of the fellows from uh, Dr. Chang from uh, UC Irvine, and this was a, st a, a retrospective study of their clinics and looked at those gout patients who received dietary counseling. That was like thirty patients compared to the gout patients that received that did not receive any dietary counseling. And they showed when they followed them out two years that the people who received dietary counseling, gee, they had less, they achieved target more frequently. Um, and that was both at six months and at two years, they had less flares overall. Um, and this is something we talk a little bit about, you know, first off diet, is it important or not? Um, I got yelled at in, in Boston when I said, not so much in my clinic, but they said, oh my God, shellfish up here is a gigantic problem. Um, so I learned something in my trip to Boston, but you know, uh, our, our, I don't think we spend any time doing this. And this to me says we probably should send, spend a lot more time counseling people on diet. Yeah. And it, well, it, if it could have a benefit, I mean, I think that was, that's part of the excitement for the studies on the microbiome and, uh, absolutely the, 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 um, there's, there's an answer there. And I tell people there's an answer. I just don't know what it is. Should you eat nothing but yogurt? Should you avoid all yogurt? Should you, you know, I think there are some things that you can tell them and maybe we should be trying to tell them a little bit more, but it's hard to know, hard to say that we know what we're doing when we're telling them to um, manipulate their diet out, outside of some conditions for gout. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your next? Um, the last one I think I'll do is, um, the uh, number 507. So this is an uh, analysis of the EXCEED study. Remember the EXCEED study was in psoriatic arthritis and um, it was secukinumab head to head with adalimumab um, and they both did very well. In fact, the secukinumab uh, very respectable responses, um, almost made it to be better than the adalimumab in the joints and did make it to be better in the skin. This looked at the uh, sex response and what they found is that overall, the um, uh, female patients with PSA, and remember in PSA studies, it's, it's about half and half that, um, you know, the, the, uh, it, it's not ankylosing spondylitis where it's mostly men or rheumatoid arthritis where it's mostly women. It's evenly distributed, but they had greater baseline disease ser uh, severity. Um, and they did a little bit differently than the, the, the men did. So we tend not to think of sex in the outcomes, I think, as we think of, of studies. Wait, 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 you're telling me that sex was an outcome in this study? <laughs> that sex affects the outcomes. I don't think we, oh. we, pay, we, we don't pay much attention to it. Um, um, oh. the, the men tended to have higher responses uh, across the board for skin and, and really remarkably for the, the higher levels of response. So um, I think there is, you know, there, there's, there's definitely differences between men and women. I don't know if we've talked about that, Jack, but, um, but you can measure the uh, various aspects of the immune system are different. And yet we lump them together. Uh, we say, you got this disease, you got this disease, you got 10 joints, so does he, you're the same. And that may not be. Yeah, uh, you know, the disparities by sex are kind of a big theme uh, at this meeting, especially a, a lot of, a lot on uh, spondyloarthritis as well. You know, um, the, the playing on the theme that women tend to be diagnosed later and yet have more severe disease and more pain and whatnot. So, um, yeah, that's surprising. I, I was not aware of, the, of this particular abstract. 
Um, my last one is going to be a, a quick mention of Michelle Petrie's three abstracts, 1261, 1262, and 1266. They all deal with the issue of testing for antiphospholipid syndrome. As you know, she runs a fairly large lupus cohort at the Hopkins Lupus Clinic. I think they have 800 patients. They had a total of about 88 um, thrombotic events in their clinic, um, both arterial and venous. Um, and in, their, in her testing, she shows that the one that is hands down the best test and outperforms all the other tests even combined um, is lupus anticoagulant. The patients who have lupus anticoagulant outperforms the, uh, either um, the antiphospholipid, any of the subtypes, or being double or triple positive. She showed the lupus anticoagulant. If you have that, you have a threefold higher risk of arterial thromboses and a fivefold higher risk of venous thromboses. And of course, these thrombotic events tend to be multifactorial. There's a lot of other things that are in play in these lupus patients that add to it. But then you fold that into the other story that she had in abstract 1266, comparing um, MI and stroke events in their lupus cohort. That um, turns out that you get stroke real early in lupus, but MI not so much. That stroke and, um, and in all of its forms was related to lupus activity by complement and also to lupus anticoagulant, um, where uh, the same could not be said for MI. MI, the risk of MI and lupus in her cohort seemed to be very multifactorial and very time dependent. So uh, why that is, she found curious and she basically throws, th throws that out for anyone to consider that wants to research this, but it's obviously something that she's concerned about. Yeah, and you know, I think we 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 sort of had had that as one of the things that we had learned. I thought over the years that lupus anticoagulant um, was, was the strongest correlator. Of course, um, that test, uh, you know, which one you're using? Um, is it the hexagonal uh, phospholipid? Uh, is it the, the dilute Russell fiber venom? Do they perform the same? Um, and Indeed. I know when this comes up in the clinic, uh, nothing I hate more than a a, a, a a, 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 an uninterpretable result on the test where it's like, it should be yes or no. You know, you should correct the, uh, with the, uh, the, the dilute Russell Viper venom should correct or it shouldn't. And then sometimes it's like, well, it kind of corrected. And then they don't, you don't get an answer with that. All right. That brings us top of the hour. We want to thank everyone for tuning in to rheumatology roundup. That's it for this year. We hope to see you in 2021 in San Francisco or at, again at the dining room table, wherever it's going to be. But uh, maybe we'll just have, Artie, you have a, fa a Facebook um, chat room that people can go to? I've heard of the Book of Face, but I have not yet partaken. Oh, okay. Well, that's another, You, we can talk about both sex and Facebook after we close this meeting. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a good night. So we've stopped recording. Um, I don't know if I stopped the meeting. I'm going to stop it now. So that was good. Thanks. Um, we're going to stop the live stream.